This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. I am once again honored to be representing my friends at New Society Publishers, the book publishers that were a big inspiration to me even before I started working with ecologies and natural buildings and way before podcasting. Their titles like The Natural Plaster Book and Timber Framing for the Rest of Us really made me believe that I could build my own home, which I eventually did. And later volumes like Ecopreneuring, Unlearn Rewild, and Building Community have offered tons of inspiration and even helped to shape my worldview. Whether you're looking for practical tips on growing and preserving food, exploring complex challenges in your own life, or sometimes just searching for hope and inspiration in a crazy world where you don't feel like you fit in, You'll find exactly what you're looking for and more at NewSociety.com. Hey everybody, and welcome back to the second part of my interview with Alan Savory. If you haven't heard the first part of this session, you can find the link in the show notes on the website. Make sure you check it out first if you haven't already, it'll give context to this portion. Now last week we covered some of Alan's insights into where he's putting his efforts at this stage of his career, and the aspects of holistic management that are tough for many to grasp, despite the simplicity of the practice. He also made the important distinction that management is something that you practice rather than apply, and how this shift in language can precipitate a change in mindset as well. Now we left off last week with Alan describing some examples of people who he's worked with who have made quick and remarkable breakthroughs working with their holistic context, and we'll pick up today with a continuation of that question. Now, since I've come to understand just how broadly holistic management can be practiced despite its primary association with grazing animals, I've been keen to understand some examples of the different contexts in which people have used this framework outside of farming. So let's jump right back in. In these other examples that you've talked about, where have you seen success in unlikely places? This idea of managing holistically is the first to break through in that from a mechanistic worldview to a holistic worldview that is as big a shift as from a front flat world to the round world. It's the second big shift probably in human history. So we're just in the infancy in it. And uh, I don't know that's close to three of it, but if we can keep it simple, keep it growing, we, we might reach there. The cases I'm involved with, uh, one of them is one that's got awards, it's the case in Africa, where at the Africa Centre we're managing wildlife, land, uh, people, etc. on a large block of land. It's one of the campuses of our Savory Institute. Now, when people come there, we can show phenomenal success on the land, are just mind-boggling. And there's been National Geographic have been and filmed there, NPR, etc. There have been amazing comments made on it. I was just there about three, four weeks ago, and we've got fresh water flowing out of the ground uh, where we haven't known it for 100 years, after 17 bad years. And we've got geese and things where we're breeding where we hadn't had them before and so on. And yet we've got parts of the land that are still in terrible shape terrible condition. It is taking us that long. Um, And that's looking at the land. And then you've got the human side of it, and the economic side of it, and we have battled endlessly 
uh, with global, well, with a whole collapse of the national economy, with corruption, with politics, with all. I mean, Zimbabwe is one of the most problematic countries in the world at the moment. But throughout all of that, and managing holistically far from perfectly. I mean, I can criticize so much of what they're doing any day. Despite that, we've had these incredible results. So it shows me we don't have to be perfect uh, or anywhere near it. But if we keep the principles of flight, if we keep the principles right, it will keep getting better. And so I find that with families that I talk to down there, I'm still dealing with families that I dealt with, oh, nearly 50 years ago and started helping them. In the TED talk, I talk of one family with their flag still flying. I'm still talking and dealing with one of those kids in that family who's now teaching people, all right? Now, on their own farms, nothing is perfect, but they're still just getting better and better and better. So that's what we need to be doing. It's realizing that you're just managing your life, you're managing the environment, and you're managing in an economy that is driving environmental destruction and the destruction of every farm, every business in the world. There can be no sustainable business until agriculture is truly managed holistically and regenerative. And so all we can do is, is look for constant improvement advance, not seek perfection. Just keep the principles, keep the simplicity, and keep improving. That's, that's all I hope for. And I, I know that, as we've said before, this will take centuries and we will be overrun by violence and destruction worse than anybody can even imagine today. We will be overrun, or we've got to, I believe, try to find a way to bring that Berlin Wall down, which I'm trying in this terribly small voice of mine at, at COP to see, because if the first government begins to manage holistically and others see and are observing, I'm, I'm suggesting we do one test case and have international observers from all the major nations just observing, then I think it'll start the domino effect because there isn't a politician in the world that knows what to do, not one. And everybody's telling them what they should do. And at COP, they will get endless uh, resolutions on what they should do. But nobody will tell them how to do it. Yeah, it's a, it's a completely different way of thinking about problems, not just finding a solution, but actually managing the path to get to it and making sure that you stay in a direction that gets you closer to the results that you say you desire. And that really brings me back to one of the challenges that I've had in this learning experience is that I've found that maybe it's just my own life, but I've definitely seen it in the feedback from my peers along this course as well. We're not often challenged to think aspirationally. We have endless examples of worst case scenarios and avoidance of all the things that could go wrong. But we're often not uh, provoked to think as to what is the best thing that could come out? What is the highest potential? What is the best case scenario? And I believe that this is really starting to cripple our collective imagination. People struggle to think in this way much more than they do in the negative. Uh, have you found the same? 
And have you found some questions that help to unlock the positive potential in people's imaginations and not just the worst case? You know, I don't really know how to uh, answer that. I personally just get extremely frustrated. This is partly old age. I, I, I say I now understand why old Buffalo Bulls lie away on their own. Um, I get extremely frustrated because people get together and I hear it and I, I get on chats with very good friends of mine. I was on one um, just a day ago. Um, wonderful fellow who's doing great things in economic field, etc. But it's all theorizing and what we could do and we should think of system things and, and, and it, it's discussion, it's words, it's, it's words. It's words, it's words, it's smokescreen. If we just stop that and just come down to saying, well, what is the problem? Let's start dealing with the cause. Because everybody knows that if you don't deal with the cause of a problem ourselves, I find people getting into the smokescreen of discussions and theorizing and uh, what would give us hope, what wouldn't give us hope, what, what, what scenarios. We can do those and they can give us hope, but if we don't address the root cause of the problem, it's not built on any foundation. So, so I really just would wish we could somehow get people to stop talking and just do it. <laughs> you know, it, it, I, I would love it. I mean, if I, if I was with a, a group of people again, uh, anywhere in the world working with them, as I do, in fact, when, if I facilitate, say, a policy session, with any group. I did this with 35 years ago I'm from two political parties, uh, people on our staff, knowing I was going to meet with them, appealed to me not to touch agriculture or land because it's so volatile and they were in such violence between the political parties and there was this hostility in the room when I got there. And uh, with them, I just talked about what we were doing and it didn't seem to be leading anywhere. Um, we were getting into worse and worse trouble with agriculture and soil destruction and everything else. And then I said, right now, the reason for this is the way we develop policies. Um, if we look at another way of developing policies, one of the first things we do need is this new concept of a national holistic context so you see i didn't i stopped all discussion about the problem because there would have been argument and fights over that like permaculture versus other agriculture or some other there would have been arguments so one of the rules when you start managing holistically is stop all discussion and argument about the issues and the problems because we've done that for ten thousand years so stop that and so I got with them and I said, all right, uh, we're all Zimbabweans, we're different political parties in, in conflict, but let's ignore that for a minute. How do we want our lives to be? And everybody's agreed. And we spelt out how we wanted our lives to be. Deep stuff. And then what about our land? Because that sustains us. So our land and our rivers and so on. How will they have to be three, four, five hundred years from now if our descendants aren't just killing each other? And we spelt that out. Clean rivers flowing again, 
abundant biodiversity, healthy soils, etc. Nobody had any disagreement at all. And then I said, well, now we're also going to have to trade with other nations and so on and so forth. I spelt all that out. And I said, we can't make them support us. We can't make them like us. We, can't, we can only change ourselves. Gandhi's advice, be the change you expect. I said, how are we going to have to behave for other nations to support us? Have they even thought of that? So we spelled that out. Now, when we'd spelled out those things, and very roughly, but everybody in total agreement, because you don't even compromise, you don't allow, you know, as a facilitator, if there'd been any disagreement, I'd have just kept discussion going until there's no compromise, there's total agreement. And then when we, once we had that, the whole atmosphere changed. It was suddenly just 35 human beings dealing with each other. And within, by the end of the day, we had the, an agricultural policy that the world would dream of. And every bit of knowledge we needed was in the room. What wasn't in any government or room was the ability to facilitate the process of dealing with the complexity of culture and society, economy and environment. And when I did that by simple questioning and leading them through to what is the purpose of government in this? What is the purpose of a policy? Therefore, who, who should be given instructions as to what actions take place on a farm? Should these be coming from the farmer or from a bureaucrat in the capital? You know, the, the obvious answers were, well, it should be coming from the farmer. Then why in every government and in Europe is, are the instructions? Of course you're in trouble. So we just went through it like that. And, and that's just doing it. Yeah, that really does give a, an, a concrete example in what many people would think of being one of the most contentious environments that you could introduce a concept like this to break down barriers and the simplicity that is at the core of connecting with the things that we all have in common and getting people to unite on collaborating towards achieving those things and then breaking down through the problems that are in our way and looking for solutions that benefit everyone. It seems, and I've seen it in practice as well, both through the courses that I've taken and in applications of practitioners that I've met. Um, much like you said, it's the complex, it's, it's, it's overcomplicating this concept and trying to add extra things, special studies and all of that, that, that breaks down the core of the, agree, the agreement that is inherent in, in everybody. And you have a template in your book that is a generic holistic context, which touches on a lot of these core things. Can you tell me about how you came up with that and like how widely it is applied and maybe what it's missing that people can add on to for their specific context, if they're well, using I, it as a starting point? I wouldn't get anybody to add on to that at all. I'd get them just to develop their own. You ask, how did I come up with that generic one? I sucked my thumb. <laughs> Literally, I just sat with my pencil and paper and said, I've worked all over the world. I've worked with Indians, Pakistanis, with Arabs, with Englishmen, with uh, Americans, with Germans, with Swedes. You know, I've worked with people all around the world. I'm a human being like others. How do most people want their lives to be? It's the same. Why the hell are we killing each other? 
is because we all are managing in a reductionist way where we're meeting our needs and our desires and solving problems and we end in conflict, go to war. So I just simply wrote, how would we want our lives to be, etc. Now, you, if people just come copy that or add to that, it will have no meaning for them. So they won't change. Their lives will just continue as they were. And that's the commonest problem, I find, is people take what they wrote in the training course or whatever, and then forget it. Or they think, as I've heard many say, that the constant, uh, the checks to see if your actions are in line with the holistic context, they think that's the key to it, those seven checks. And it isn't. The, the key to managing holistically is just the depth of commitment and ownership. And the hardest thing anybody has to do, literally, is just develop their own holistic context. It, with help if need be, but deeply thought out, deep in here, you would die rather than not live a life like that. I don't say your children mean more, they should be in there. Don't say your religion means more, it should be in there. There are no excuses. When that holistic context of yours is written down, it should mean more to you than anything in life. Now you will just begin to do that and your life will just begin to go that way. The context checks are only for complicated cases, arguments, where people can't quite agree yet. Two, two ideas would meet all the requirements. Now, which one do we do? Let's go through the context checks and then usually one will drop out and then people are happy with that because we'll go ahead with this action first and then that one will follow and so on. So the, the context checks have their place, but the ownership in the holistic context is what brings it about. I mean, I've been able to uh, save my property in Africa. It's now serving the whole nation. And I've gone through over 4,000 farms and ranches taken over by the government. I went through long civil war, everything. I've been able to maintain that. Why? Because I was managing holistically. And I never confused ownership with management. And when I developed my holistic context, I realized what I valued was the life of living in Africa with the poor people that I really like in rural communities with the wildlife of Africa. I didn't value the ownership in the land. And so one of my first decisions holistically when I could get back at the end of our uh, war was to give the land away. And by giving the land away and making the chiefs trustees, I'm still living there amongst the wildlife and still working with the people. 35 years later, that's managing holistically, far mm. from perfectly, but I'm very happy there. And now it's doing immense good for the whole of Africa. Wow. Look, we're starting to get to the end of this, and I want to ask one very candid question here because it's been a personal struggle for me that I noticed earlier while I was understanding some of the concepts in this and really stopped me from making progress in the beginning. And I, it took me a while to realize this, but as I started to see the steps that were required to get in touch with 
the things that are important to you for your personal con uh, context. I put off doing things like this for a long time, and I now realize it was because I was afraid that this was going to bring to light all of the poor ways that I was making decisions and managing things in the past. And it took me a while to get past that and to realize that so many more things could open up to me if I got past the ego aspect of this attachment to the way that I had been doing things. Because like many other people, I struggled to make those decisions. I put time into it. I put a lot of effort into it. I put a lot of money into some of the decisions that had kind of governed my life in the direction I had gone in. Do you have any advice or some insights into what it takes to get past the expectations that, or even the realization that a lot of the ways that you have been making decisions or managing your life up until this point has been self-destructive and that there are more clear and selfless ways to do that that can still benefit you in the direction you're trying to go? Well, you know, you're asking me deep stuff that I, I really don't have answers to. I just do know that uh, earlier part of your question, when you're developing your own holistic context, it's very private. Um, so many people just develop it with others, share it with others. Uh, it, it's not like a mission statement. It's not branding. It's deep stuff. Mine is very private to me. I've shown it to a couple of family members, a few others, when I've been trying to use it for a teaching purpose. Mine is very short, but it's very deep. I literally would die rather than not live the life I describe in mine. Um, so it's very personal. Keep it personal. And then, yes, it takes a long time. It took me a long time to get to one of the things that uh, is helping me a lot in later life. Let me actually take the risk of mentioning this because it might help other people. In, in describing my behavior, I described how I would have to behave with honor, dignity, professionalism, uh, a good attitude, uh, always to the best of my ability, etc. Um, and and I had that for there for years. And then when I redid it, as I do every year or so, when I redid it last, I was sitting just under the trees in Africa uh, with a pencil and paper. And as I thought of that, I thought, you know, you're just fooling yourself. You're not fooling other people. You're not always behaving in this manner. Now, cut the bullshit, because you're only talking to yourself. Now, is there anything I should change here? And I did. I put one thing, and I put it was to deeply question my own motive before any action. And even before I push the send button on an email, now I will sit and say, what is my motive? Am I doing this to have the last word, to score a point? Don't do it. Don't do it. It's got to be for the best of motives, the best of outcomes, etc. Now that's deep stuff. I, I, I'm a little awkward talking about it because but I do and when you sit with that honesty with yourself it's embarrassing to suddenly realize my god I was about to do something stupid now I didn't have that depth in it a year or two ago two three years ago so it's a, with each of us it'll keep improving I, I believe but keep it personal mm. it is just your 
thing now. If you're in a group, then it's a group one. If it's a company or any organization, then it's a group one, as we have in the Savory Institute and our hubs and so on. But your own, keep it very personal. If you're showing it to others, I'm doubting it has the depth it should have. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it uh, it comes in line with one a bit of advice that has served very useful for me, especially in the last handful of years, is that my mindset is governed by the questions that I ask myself. And that seems like an extremely powerful one that's had a real impact on your life. It's, uh, it's a question that demands some real personal insight. And I can imagine that over the years, getting in the habit of asking yourself that regularly has caused you to think about all of your actions much more deeply as an automatic response before taking action or, or um, yeah, or, or starting to implement them. Well, no, you know, it didn't go that way with me because the, the personal stuff came in much, much later. I was just started as a 20, 21 year old young ecologist, first getting a glimmering that it was our management as professional ecologists in government that was leading to the biodiversity loss in future national parks. So I began studying why is it that it's our management that is causing the problem, not poachers and all the things we're blaming. So all the way through, I was, I was studying the land, the management, what's happening to people, not at this personal level. When the personal level only came in when we'd had some amazing successes in the 60s and 70s, but it was still land, wildlife, cattle, crops. It, it wasn't a policy level or anything like that until that episode I mentioned when I came to America as a, as a political refugee and was commissioned to train those 2000 scientists over two years. That's the point at which we finally broke through with the holistic context. And, and then when we realized, oh my God, this starts with us as individuals. So that came late in the day. Uh, my questioning up to that time had not been questioning personally, as much as just questioning what the hell are we doing as professional people? Uh, and what's happening to the land and the wildlife and the crops and politics and army and farming and consulting and, trying to sort this out, always the same problem. Poor land means poor people, social people, violence, war, etc. But I was just trying to sort that out. Mm. Now, the insights and the advice that you've been giving me throughout this talk have really reflected the parts that are baked into the holistic management framework, which is humility. And it's one of the things that first really stuck out to me as I started to learn this in greater depth, how the assumption that you are wrong is a very big part of monitoring your decisions. And especially in holistic financial management, not just assuming, but knowing that you're wrong from the beginning and you're constantly, really yeah, knowing that you're wrong is, is an essential part of moving forward and starting to work with the decisions that you've made. Can you talk about why that is so central um, and what it changes in your mindset before you start marching ahead with something that you've chosen? Uh, <clears throat> I don't know how it changes mindset, but I, ho I hope it does. Um, 
Yeah, I long ago realized it first with the environment that I was wrong, like the elephant culling example I used in the TED talk where I was so wrong and all, all, all of us scientists were, and they, they still are in pushing that line as they're doing. So with the environment is so complex that I've heard soil scientists one years ago make a statement that I loved. He said something about the complexity in a cubic inch of soil was so great that it might be beyond our understanding for all time. I love that. And that's just in a cubic inch of soil. So with the environmental actions, if we're taking a new action and managing holistically, no matter how much science it's backed up with and everything else, we automatically assume we're wrong and monitor on that assumption. Now, there's no danger. There's nothing but good that comes out of that. And we've seen that year after year. Now, when it comes to the financial part of uh, monitoring, remember, we're managing nature, money, and humans. When it comes to the money part of it, and you mentioned it a moment ago, when you do holistic financial planning, you don't assume you're wrong, you know damn well you're wrong, because no plan ever works out exactly as you planned. So that one, we don't assume we're wrong, we know we're wrong, and we establish the monitoring of the plan and the controlling of the plan, uh, etc., to keep it, the process going. Now, when it comes to human part of it, when we're dealing with humans, as we always are as well, uh, we do not assume we're wrong. Uh, there's, again, good science behind that, the Pygmalion effect. If you assume something about a person, their behavior does begin to reflect it. And there's, there's good science behind that. So if I assume that I can't trust you, I'll, I'll end up not trusting, um, or whatever. So with the human side of it, we do not assume we're wrong, uh, but we monitor for early signs and use, use the scientific work there from people like Virginia Satter, uh, and the early signs of dysfunction uh, that, that you spot in people, the body language, etc., and then try to control and uh, replan if we have to. But if you assume you're wrong, you, you will make yourself wrong uh, uh, on that one. So the three are treated slightly differently. Environment, yes, we assume we're wrong uh, uh, and monitor accordingly. Uh, economics we know damn well we're wrong so we monitor accordingly and with the humans no you assume the best in people and it have to be high trust and then you monitor for signs that that's going right it's yeah. a very vital part of it because we are dealing with complexity the management of complexity and we're right at our infancy as i said earlier on how to do that indeed well, look, Alan, you've been very generous with your time. I've really enjoyed this talk. It's really illuminated a lot of things that were still uh, hangups for me as I continue down the path of learning in this area. And it's already been extremely profound in helping me make decisions and manage even small things in my life. And I <laughs> will be respectful of your time and let you go here. I really hope that you feel better and get over your cold soon. And I really look forward to speaking to you again on the expert panel call that we have coming up at the end of the month. Uh, okay, Oliver. Well, thanks for the talk. And last two words, don't apply it and keep it very simple. <laughs> I'm okay. just going to strike that word from my vocabulary. <laughs>
<laughs> but it's like so many other things. As soon as you say that's the wrong word, that was the only word that could come into my mind. <laughs> okay. Good luck Thank to you. Thank you so much, Alan. Take care. Have a good day. All right, thanks again to Alan Savory and his wife, Jody Butterfield, who was so helpful in setting up this call. That concludes this two-part interview with Alan, but if you're interested in hearing more from him, I'll be publishing the expert panel call with him as well as Rudolf Bühler of the Schloss Kirchberg Farming Association in Germany and Anna Digon of the Agricultura Regenerativa Network in Spain in just a few weeks, so keep an eye out for that. Until then, you can find out more about Alan's work through the Savory Institute at savory.global. And I also highly recommend the holistic management online training that I'm currently on with Sheila Cook and 3LM. And you can find out all about their educational resources at 3LM.network. And before you go, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free for you and unlike other social media platforms that were created with complex algorithms used to mine your personal data in order to sell you more junk, this channel was created for the free exchange of ideas, stories, and mutual support among the growing regenerative pioneers. Now over the next couple of weeks we'll be exploring questions like, what aspects of the things that you currently manage do you feel are going well and which could benefit from being analyzed for areas of improvement? What indicators do you look for to let you know if your management decisions are working as planned or need to be replanned? As an example, I've been managing my in-person workshops in a way that has me rebuilding the template from scratch nearly every time I plan a new course. And yet I've noticed that there are many similar patterns in what is needed for all of the courses that I teach, regardless of topic. And I'm seeing opportunities to create a template, a general template, that can be repurposed for all of my workshops, which could save me a ton of time in planning and preparation. Now, if you're interested in joining the Discord and exploring these questions with me, just check out the link on our Instagram account or on the homepage of the website at regenerativeskills.com. Now, that's our show for this week. Don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.